beaming from Pacific Junction Hotel to Earth. Yo. Yo, Benjamin. How you doing? I'm good. Good to talk to you. Yeah. It's been a little while. It's been a couple of years, actually. Yeah, about to come. Mm-hmm. Are your, uh, I'm just adjusting the levels before we get going, but uh, are your kids getting the hang of the whoopee cushion? <laughs> yeah, those little bastards. They're, uh, they're always trying to sneak it into my office chair as well. Oh, <laughs> that's a classic. It's good to see that <laughs> the, uh, the kids are keeping the, the classics alive. Yeah, they've got they've got, I've got some Halloween pranks going as well. You know, spiders oh. put on my put on my pillow and whatnot. Who? I, I, I get no I get no respect, no respect. Yeah, no, I could I could see that. Yeah, uh, you and Rodney Dangerfield, I could see how you would uh, end up in the same <laughs> category. You guys have a lot in common. All right, so we'll get started. Good evening, and yo, welcome to my summer layer. I'm your horror host, Sammy Yunan. I'm terrified to welcome back writer Benjamin Percy. When we last spoke, his novel, The Dark Net, was out, and he was writing Green Arrow for uh, DC Comics and a Wolverine podcast for Stitcher. Uh, like the hand out of the grave, he's returned with a new book, Suicide Woods, and if you are a fan of pouches, you'll be happy to hear he's been tapped to write X-Force uh, for Marvel Comics. So, welcome back, Benjamin. Hey, thanks for having me. We are uh, approaching Halloween uh, as we talk, and uh, is Halloween, I guess, your favorite holiday that this time of year? October. October, October is the holy month. This is absolutely this is absolutely my favorite time of year. What was the what's the attraction to it? Why Halloween and the fall and the the horror and all that? Well, on the one hand, I love it when the air starts to get a you know a bite to it mm-hmm. uh, because. My heart melts over 70 degrees, so <laughs> you know, fall and winter are my favorite seasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's something about the way that the leaves, uh, you know, the way they burn with color, and it, it just makes you pause again and notice the world around you once more. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's almost like my, my senses come alive at this time of year. But then there's also, you know, the horror of it all and uh, the spookiness of the season and I tend to binge on horror novels and horror movies and horror TV shows around mid-September through through Halloween. So it's uh, it suits my you know my hard wiring. The shadows, the shadow soap time of year. <laughs> Do you for the for the horror movies and uh, books and TV shows that you're binging? Are you going back and like reading old school stuff uh, like? Um, Edgar Allan Poe or things like that, Stephen King, or are you like Absolutely. newer stuff? Yeah, right now, right now I've got on my bedside table the best stories of Richard Matheson, and he's so good. I, I've read them many times before, and I'm reading them again. And he is the author that Stephen King says has the greatest influence on him, and it's obvious why. I mean, he's as pulpy as he is smart. Mm-hmm. He is. As funny as he is terrifying, and some of those stories, like Duel, you know, have been made into fantastic films, and other stories like Nightmare at Twenty Thousand Feet mm-hmm. have been made into my favorite Twilight Zone episode of all time, and I just I delight in them. And I also have uh, the Sandman Omnibus at my bedside right now, along with a bunch of Tales from the Crypt and Vault of Horror comics from my collection. So I'm doing a deep dive. Uh, 
down nostalgia lane in a way, rereading all these stories that delighted me long ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, this is a bit of a tangent, but Twilight Zone is celebrating 60 years this year. That's right. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jordan Peele, right, is part of that celebration with his yeah. reboot. Uh, we'll jump. That was the past. Now we'll jump to the present. And uh, your new book is uh, Suicide Woods. What can you tell us about Suicide Woods? And if both of us go there together, will both of us come back or just one <laughs> of us come back? <laughs> so Suicide Woods is the title story of the collection. Mm-hmm. And that story in particular was inspired by an article I read in The New Yorker a few years back about the suicide culture of Japan and the suicide forest that exists in the shadow of Mount Fuji. And there's a, there are a lot of bodies stacked up there. People go there to die. Uh, you'll find skeletons in the moss. You'll find bodies dangling from trees like ornaments. And this, you know, haunted me, stuck in my brain. And I decided to explore it through the prism of fiction. And I took this landscape this sort of, I guess you could call it a terrible place, which is a trope in horror stories. Mm-hmm. You know, the terrible place is Hill House. Mm-hmm. The terrible place is, is the Myers House. Mm-hmm. Terrible place is... Uh, Overlook. Yeah, yeah, and, and the Overlook. And, and so I took the terrible place and I transplanted it into our country. And I also explored, in a way, these anxious and depressive times that we live in. So, yeah, it's about suicide ideation and it's about a group of people who are in a uh, you know in a support situation i guess you could say it's a kind of therapy circle Mm -hmm. and the head of this therapy circle is in essence trying through exposure uh to deaden their want for uh for for suicide you know to, to to sort of alleviate their their will to kill themselves and and offer them uh you know a more promising future and things go horribly wrong <laughs> uh so the number of short stories in in the the book and you mentioned the anxious times is part of that a response just putting out short stories a response to kind of like our shrinking attention span we hear all these articles all the time about that yeah you would hope that uh in this, you know, with our with our short attention spans, that people would be more drawn to short stories. I'm not sure that that's the case. I think they're drawn like moths to the glow of their screens instead. But I love the short form, and it's my first love as a writer. You know, my first two books were short stories, and I've been I write you know two or three or four of them a year now, and I had enough for two collections. But there was a big steaming pile of short fiction that my editor and I worked through with the understanding that we needed to make a book book. We needed to make this feel not just like in a random assortment of narratives between two covers, but instead we needed to find stories that spoke to one another, that were united by theme. And so all of the pieces in this collection are, you know, about loneliness, about the clash of civilization and wilderness and they are sort of trying to live up to the maxim of my book of essays. I wrote a book of craft essays that's sort of like an arsenal of uh, techniques, mm-hmm. uh, specifically techniques that contribute to suspense and momentum. And that book is called Thrill Me. So in a way, these 
stories in Suicide Woods are all trying to live up that the maxim of that of that book, which is you know writing stories that are both compulsively readable and artfully told. Yeah, and so the book opens with the very first story, The Cold Boy. Uh, how would you kind of describe this one? Because I got the feeling that almost like everybody in the story is dead inside. And how yeah, yeah. would you describe what's happening in this one? This is a really unusual image. <laughs> and that story is inspired by two different things. Uh, one, you know, oftentimes I'll have an image in my head, mm-hmm. and and sometimes this image will be there for for years, and sometimes I, the image just comes out of the ether, like I just invented, or sometimes it's born out of life. And in this case, uh, when I was living in Ames, Iowa, when I was teaching at Iowa State, I saw something rather horrifying one day. I was walking with Rick Bass, he's another writer, uh, across the campus, and around this time, a student had gone missing. He had left the bar drunk, and he was never seen again. And so on this wintry morning, we're walking across campus, and we look down on the campus lake, which is frozen, and there are all these cops on the lake, and they have they're sawing holes into it and all these divers are dropping down into the water and they're looking for this kid because there were dogs baying in the fields. There were search parties in the woods and they thought maybe he had fallen through the ice. So from this angle, we're on this hillside and from this angle with the holes carved into the ice, the pond looked like a skull and Rick Bass turned to me and he said, you got to call it. And sometimes writers do this, you know, you'll be at a bar, somebody's telling a story, and they'll be like, I'm, I'm calling that one, that one's mine. <laughs> yes, like volleyball. So he said, you want to call it? <laughs> he said, you want to call it? And I said, let's race. And so we actually both wrote stories that were inspired by that moment. Um, the Cold Boy's Mine, it was also inspired by all of these crows that winter in Iowa. Iowa is, I don't know why, but like thousands and thousands and thousands of crows come to Ames, Iowa in the winter, and it's so bad that the sky is sometimes black with them. And you go across campus, it's this postcard perfect campus, but there are so many crows that roost on the buildings and in the parking garages that they have to put in these uh, sound systems that play over and over again the noise of crows being tortured. And so you'll be walking to this campus and you'll hear shouting from the rooftops. And, you know, one time I was actually listening to these carolers, like these kids in Christmas sweaters. They were caroling on campus. And in between the songs, you know, here they are singing like, ho, 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 who wouldn't know? And they pause and they're singing and you hear in the background, you know, some crow being electrocuted, which is supposed to scare them off. And anyway, so one time, actually, I walked into this church after a Christmas Eve service and I heard. Up and down the street, this, you know, there's this strange, rusty, muttering sound. And I looked up and down the block, and it was night, but all the trees, they should have been skeletal. They should have been bare, but they all looked leafed out, but they were blackly leafed. It turned out to be all of these crows were in maple after maple after maple after maple up and down the street. And then I heard this behind me as well. I turned around, and the entire roof of the church is covered with crows. You know, it was very Hitchcockian. Mm-hmm. And, and so the crows, you know, they're sort of like an echo point. They're meaningfully repeated throughout the story. This cold boy that I imagined, you know, twisting in the water uh, through these columns of light. He's in the story. And so, you know, I'm oftentimes doing this. Like I've got these images and I arrange them in a dark constellation and I figure out the meaning of them. And yeah, everything in that story is, is frozen for good reason. And and because it's about lifelessness. And he, too, the, the main character of the story, Ray, he's a taxidermist, right, which is about 
life made motionless. Mm-hmm. So all of the things come together in sort of an eerie way. And I have another story too that connects to this and it connects to a lot of the stories in the collection. Maybe you've heard this one before, but a father walks into a bedroom mm-hmm. to wish his child good night. And the boy is in his bed pale and shivering and the father asks him what's wrong and the boy says I think there's something under the bed and so the father gets down on his knees and he lifts the dust ruffle and he says I'm sure that's not the case but indulges the boy by looking underneath the box spring and there he sees a face a pale and shivering face and it seems to belong to his son who says I think there's something in my bed. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that I love about that story is it's is its duplicity, yeah. is its moral confusion because you're not sure like is this the predator and is that the victim or are they both the monster? Mm-hmm. And that's something that I'm tackling not just in the Cold Boy but in a lot of these stories. And it feeds into you what you were saying before, how that some of these stories or all these stories are a response to the anxious times that we're in. Because that's a classic horror thing where there's like there's something in my closet, this house is haunted, and people try to say it, either a, a young boy or a bunch of horny teenagers in Crystal Lake, whatever it is, and they're trying to say there's something not right here, there's, this pickle's not kosher. And what right. ends up happening is everyone kind of always kind of dismisses them, denies them, tells them they're crazy those kind of things, until they all find out that they were right. Well, that idea of the character who is unreliable, who, and maybe it's not just the other characters in the story that don't trust this person, maybe it's the reader as well. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think about some of those stories we were talking about earlier, I mentioned Haunting of Hill House, and you brought up The Shining. Both of those are notable in that they not only have, you know, the Overlook Hotel or, or Hill House, you know, which are cursed locations. They're stained. They're haunted. Mm-hmm. But they're explored through an unreliable perspective. In the case of Hill House, it's through the perspective of Eleanor. In the case of the Overlook Hotel, it's explored through Jack Torrance. And both of them are on edge. Both of them are not to be trusted. And so you can't help but wonder, like, are the horrible things that are happening, are they caused by this structure, this stamp of land, or are they caused by the person? And that's something that if you look at the novella in Suicide Woods, uh, the novella that, that caps the collection is called The Uncharted. I'm doing something similar there where you have a terrible place. And that terrible place is the Bermuda Triangle of the North. It's an actual place in Alaska. And Alaska has the highest number of missing person cases in the country. And a lot of them come from the Bermuda Triangle of the North. So that is my Overlook Hotel. That is my Hill House. And it's being explored by this team, you know, this team that essentially works for Google. I mean, I I create a, uh, a different name for the company, but you know, it's a map-making company. It's a company that is trying to to capture every inch of the world, which is what Google is right now trying to do. And so they go to this forbidden place, and each of them is struggling with their own 
emotional weakness. They're each struggling with their own, you know, sort of sort of inner turmoil, and and the place is a reflection of that. Yeah, first season of the Wolverine podcast. It was set in Burns, Alaska. Burns, of course, is a fictional place, but I believe it was in the very first episode. One of the characters says, "There's a lot of ways to die in Alaska." Yeah, yeah, that's the jaws of Alaska. They'll chew you up, and it's my favorite state. Mm-hmm. Been there several times. I've been I've been fishing there. I've been hiking there, and I can't get enough of those. The the jawline of its mountains. Uh, the mud flats uh, of of some of those inlets, just like the staggering beauty and danger of the place, I'm fascinated by. So I'm going to keep writing about it. This is your Overlook Hotel because what you just said, like hiking and fishing in, in Alaska, that sounds very serene, very nice. What would you do to your characters? And even in the Wolverine podcast, you put them in these really hostile, harsh environments that's also just as scary too, because nature is a real uh, beast. We should be scared of nature in a way. Yeah, yeah. And I grew up, you know, I grew up in a family that is very outdoorsy. And for a time, my parents were back to the landers. They, you know, grew their own vegetables. We had a chicken coop. My father hunted all of our meat. So I grew up eating venison and elk and bear is why I sound like this steady <laughs> diet of bear mm-hmm. and and every weekend just about you know we were headed off into some dry canyon or headed up some mountainside and we'd be camping we'd be fishing we'd be rock hounding and fossil hunting and you know this taught me not just the wonder of the outdoors but also the perils of the outdoors and you know I had a lot of near-death experiences. I also had friends who died. One of, you know, the people I went to school with died when skiing. Another one died when snowmobiling. Another one was bitten by a rattlesnake. And and on and on we go. These situations arose that have just imprinted themselves in my brain like a fossil, and I'm finding different ways to explore them on the page now. When you and I talked about uh, your last novel, The Dark Net, the, the premise of the, the book or what inspired that book was how uh, vulnerable we are to hackers, uh, cybersecurity, um, our records can be erased, all that kind of, uh, we're very vulnerable, we're very exposed, especially online. And it's the same thing with nature, and that's what you're saying with like, when you say you've had like near-death experiences, what were some of the situations where you kind of got into trouble and like you may not have been able to get out? Uh, well, just to list off a few, there was one in which I was dragged out. This is as a kid by an undercurrent, and I was dragged offshore and unable to to swim until somebody came and and ripped me out of the out of the water. So that was when I was six. Um, later on, I was on a dirt bike, so my friends and I would tear around on dirt bikes, and I ended up going off a cliff on one. That was being a little reckless. Um, <laughs> I <laughs> tried to do a backflip on uh, Mount Bachelor while skiing, and I landed on my fat head and skidded down this cornice. Um, another time, and this is this is when things you know get really scary, and where you can see things that connect to my books. Uh, I worked at Glacier National Park one summer, 
And the first thing that the ranger told me when I got off of the train was that the other gardener, so I was hired as a gardener there, that the other gardener had been eaten, so I was it. <laughs> and, what and ate the gardener? He, he had been uh, discovered on a tr- off a trail, and they found his spine, and they found his boots with his feet still in them. Wow. And this bear and her cubs then developed a taste for people. So they stalked my roommate at the lodge Mm -hmm. uh, for 10 miles. So he was hiking with a group of people, and these bears, they would bluff charge over and over again, this group. And then, you know, when I was in the backcountry, I was in my tent sleeping when I heard this crunching and there was a bear just outside the tent crashing towards me and it uh, pressed its face against the nylon and uh, it was inches away from my face and the slobber of its muzzle began to seep through the nylon in the shape of a melted bat and I had my knife out and I was this close to just you know, slamming it forward into its snout, but uh, managed to maintain my fear and adrenaline, and eventually it just pulled back, and the nylon, nylon sprung back into place, and oh, 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 you know, it tramped off into the darkness once more. And you know, I can just keep going where these, yeah. these moments that where they, you know, you feel like you put your foot over the edge of a cliff and drawn it back, and there's a when you when you do that, you, when you when you when you just get a little taste of the reaper, you know that that's when you feel most alive. I'm really grateful now that I'm a city kid. The worst thing I've done is just go down the wrong alleyway. So. <laughs> hey, that can be bad too, as <laughs> Batman can attest. That's true. Um, but speaking <laughs> of bear, one of the stories that's really interesting is heart of a bear. Your main character is an actual bear. <laughs> Yeah, I should have reserved that for the title of my memoir. Yeah, yes, right? <laughs> <laughs> and in the acknowledgments, you write an special nod to Mary Shelley, the Queen of Darkness for Frankenstein, without which yeah. I never would have written Heart of a Bear. So why yeah. why give Mary Shelley a nod for Heart of the Bear? So my favorite, Frankenstein is one of my favorite novels, but my favorite part of Frankenstein is chapters 6 through 11. And in them, the creature is stumbling through the winter forest and he happens upon this cabin and he hides behind the wood pile and there he convalesces and he spies through a gap in the logs of his cabin the people who live within it and he learns from them over the course of the winter language and customs and even love you know he feels great affection for them he feels like he is a part of the family, even though he is separate from them. And when spring comes, he decides to introduce himself, and that doesn't go well. You know, they're <laughs> obviously horrified by the mm-hmm. sight of him, the lurching sight of deformed sight of him, and they scream and, and scatter away, and he destroys them. <laughs> so I'm playing around with something similar here, with, uh, from the perspective of a bear. Yeah, it's very similar to, like, Wolverine, in a sense, where, like, he's kind of misunderstood. Yeah, those are my favorite characters. Mm-hmm. The, the, monsters, the monsters that have bruised hearts. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Is that what we can expect from your Wolverine series when it starts? 
Well, there's a little bit of that, sure. I mean, there's all sorts of things I'm going to be exploring. I will say, first of all, when it comes to Wolverine, you know, he's never been in a better place. If you've read House of X, if you've read Powers of Ten, if you know what's going on. Hickman did an incredible job. Yeah, Hickman did an incredible job. And he's, you know, he's built this garden for us to play in. And it's got a thousand years of storytelling in it. And if you think about this new status quo, the mutants have declared sovereignty. Krakoa is a nation. You know, Wolverine has never been better. And he's even approaching, though he would never use a word like this, happiness. And, you know, he has his family and nearby. And I'm not just talking about, you know, Doc and then Laura. I'm, and I'm not just talking about Professor X, you know, his father figure. I'm also talking about the Summers family, who he lives with now. And, and I'm also talking about the larger mutant family, you know, mutant kind. They're all there on the island. And even those who have fought against one another in the past are now united against AI and against humankind. So Wolverine's never been in a better place. That's where we begin our story. And the question is, can it last? And I'm guessing you know the answer to that. <laughs> that'd, be a, that'd be a short <laughs> series if it lasted. It'd be like two panels or something. It's just, it's just Wolverine chilling on Krakoa. That's the whole thing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so splash pages, basically. Drinking at the Tiki Bar. Um, and no, so I'm exploring all, <laughs> all sorts of different you know, mm-hmm. angles of the character. You know, I'm interested in his memory, his broken mind. You know, he's somebody who has been, who's had his mind wiped, who has had his mind planted over and over again. And as a result of that, there's always this uncertainty as to what is true or not. There are all these gaps in his history. So I'll be exploring that. So I'll be exploring, you know, the, I guess you could say the toll and the responsibility of immortality. You know, he's, Wolverine's been around for a long time and he's going to, He's going to be around for a long time. And, and when you see the world go through wars and when you outlive your friends, like that messes with you and it changes your view of life and maybe makes you more protective of those who are vulnerable. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, ex- I'm exploring, you know, his relationships with, with, with some of his closer friends and exploring his relationship with some of his tighter enemies and the first issue is oversized and i don't know that i'm allowed to say how just how oversized it is but it's a big one and i'll say that it has two stories in it and those two stories are completely different tonally you know one is more of a crime story a mystery story and and the other one is more of a horror story with a dash of romance in it, man. They're tonally so different, and I think that gives you, will give people an understanding of like what to expect, which is I'm coming at Wolverine from all different angles. That makes sense. Wolverine's always, um, I mean, most of the X-Men characters, but Wolverine especially, he's a walking pile of like contradictions. A lot of things he does yeah. doesn't really kind of make sense. He's like a teacher, but he's also a terrible example. It's not one of the X-Men you would want to emulate. That's right. That's right. And and here he is, like he's got this history of violence, right? Like he's he's spilled enough blood to fill a reservoir, but he also feels horrible guilt over that, and and is oftentimes you know seeking atonement. So 
That's another haunted angle of him that I'm going to be mining. Mm. Were you um, excited now? You've been writing Wolverine kind of for the podcast series for Stitcher. You wrote two seasons for that. But now you're going to be switching and obviously, as you said, playing in Hickman's garden, X-Garden. So is it kind of a different approach then? Because this one is so grounded in all of the concepts and things that Hickman has said. Yeah, yeah. Those other, the, the Wolverine podcast series, you know, that was out of continuity. And now this is, as I've said, a total paradigm shift, what's happening with Krakoa. Mm-hmm. So completely different context for telling any sort of X story. And what about what can we expect from X Force? You're like Frankenstein now. You've uh, lumbered in, and now you're part of this mutant council, this X family. Uh, you're one That's of the right. writers that will be uh, penning the stories for Dawn of X. Um, so, what can we expect from X Force? Pouches. X Force is, you know, is a, is, a, is a product of of this new new dawn. You know, this is not the X Force you're familiar with. It's not just dark X-Men. It's not just, you know, uh, a team of of mutants who are, you know, chasing down black ops operations. Like, it's it's faster than that. It's more complicated than that. Because Krakow is a nation. This is the mutant CIA. And I'm approaching it as a procedural. So, if you think of, like, Law and Order, there is a division here. There is uh, a group of analysts, there's an intelligence unit, and then on the other hand, there is a wet work team, you know, essentially their Delta Force. And the idea is that the Quiet Council is aware of the necessity of X-Force, but they don't want to know what's happening. You know, just sort of like our government sometimes treats the CIA. Mm -hmm. Um, There's going to be surveillance, there's going to be blackmail, there's going to be assassinations, offensive and defensive measures taken that won't necessarily sit well, even within X-Force with everyone. You know, this is very morally complicated. They're interested in the greatest good for the greatest number of mutants, but sometimes the way in which that's accomplished is dirty. That's interesting because, I mean, it's it's very similar to what you're saying, uh, like how the mafia will have that guy in tracksuits to uh, kind of send them over, and the guy in the tracksuit will have a chat with you. Is basically what you're saying. Where like these are the the ex the ex forcer or the guys in the tracksuit will have a talk with people who don't who have an issue with mutants. Yeah, and sometimes sometimes no talk is necessary. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes you just get out the brass knuckles and the chainsaws and get to work. That's still communicating, though, right? <laughs> Use your message. words, Wolverine. Use your words. There you go. That's the tagline for the book. How are you keeping <laughs> all of this stuff uh, straight? Like, you've got these short stories and you're writing novels. Like, I remember in an interview, or maybe you and I, were t- when we were talking about it, but you mentioned you had a nightmare factory where you kind of had, like, a little room <laughs> right. uh, where you put all this stuff together. Can you just describe the nightmare factory <laughs> for somebody? Yeah, yeah. So, the... I'm in my office right now, and I'm looking into the Nightmare Factory. There's a closet off of my office. And this closet was used by the previous owner of the home as a dark room. You know, he, this is where, beneath the red light, he would develop his photographs. So I now use the dark room to tack up all of my ideas. You know, the wall is heavily papered, and I have articles ripped from magazines and newspapers. I have... Two by five note cards 
with ideas jotted down on them. I have action set pieces detailed. I have blueprints of screenplays and novels. And I go into the dark room every morning and I commune with my imaginary friends. You know, I, I, I revisit them. And, and, you know, I'm always staying visually in touch with the stories that I'm writing because I am working on several different things. And by having it up on the wall, by having it visually represented, I can move stuff around and I can also file it away. I don't have to have it all in my head at once. Mm-hmm. So that's how I, that's how I keep track of it all. And I also am carefully managing my time. You know, I will work, let's say for two days exclusively on X-Force. And then I will work for three days just on my novel. And then I will work maybe one morning on an edit. And then in the afternoon, I will work on a screenplay and and so on. You know, I'm always segmenting everything. Mm -hmm. So it's not like I'm juggling. It's not like I'm juggling writing something and then switching to another document and writing something else and then switching back to another document. That would make my brain get torn to confetti. I could imagine, because it's incredible when you look back at um, Stephen King's output in the uh, 80s, like Cranking Out Christine, uh, Misery, Tommy Knockers. Like, he was cranking them out one at a time, obviously, in terms of publishing, but he was writing them like three or four or five books at a time. And I'm amazed that he was able to kind of keep all the characters, all the plot, all the details, all that stuff together uh, and still kind of put it out a high volume and quality work. That's impressive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, it's, you know, if I was an X-Men, I would be the lamest X-Men because my power is deep concentration. So <laughs> I'd be like, look out, Sabretooth is coming. And I'd, I'd like to sit there and concentrate. <laughs> I'd be totally worthless. But that's what I can do. I can, I can get at my keyboard and I can just go someplace else. And I can go, you know, in, into this dream world for hours at a time and, and, essentially be unaware of my surroundings unless my dog comes over and, you know, paws at me. So I might have 10 pages in front of me that I barely remember writing. Mm-hmm. And just to go back full circle, just as we wrap up, you mentioned, like, when I asked you about the first short story, The the Cold Boy, uh, you talked about how, like, it was sparked by an image and the, the divers were opening up the uh, the frozen lake and were looking for the boy, the or the body, I guess, yep. in this case. Like... When I asked you about the X-Men work, you talked about some of the themes and some of those ideas and stuff like that. I guess every approach is different, right? Like, you don't always just start with an image. You just kind of start with an idea. Or, like, in the X-Men case, those are established characters, so you kind of know where the story is already. Is it just kind of you? No, your I, mean, I, still have, I still have these images. Usually the image is pinned to the main set piece mm-hmm. of, of the story. So, you know, every comic will have at least one major action set piece, usually that I write. And... For instance, there's one that I just handed in, an X-Force story that uh, takes place on a snowy mountain uh, just outside of Tahoe. And there's a chase scene on the snowboard and on skis. And uh, I can't, I can't get into, go into any more detail than that, but, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, an insane piece of sort of gymnastic choreography. Mm-hmm. So that image was in my head for some time before I ever even wrote the comic. And the idea was like, how do I get there? How do I get to that point? And in terms of when you're teaching writing or you're holding uh, writing workshops and you've done that in a number of different cities, countries and things like that, 
Are, is that one of the central tenets that you kind of encourage other writers to do is kind of start and build around a really central or really pivotal image? Because almost all the stories in Suicide Woods have a really strong image or a set piece like Mud Man. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I mean, I, think that, I don't think there's one way to do it. But for me, that's, that's sort of the germ that, that everything grows out of. So oftentimes, yeah, I'll, I'll talk to students about, you know, uh, sort of going through their, their mind. And oftentimes it helps to consolidate, to sort of catalog memories. And I compare it to a film, and I'll say, like, okay, let's say you watch a trailer. There's usually, you know, let's say five central set pieces in a film, and those set pieces are what are always in the trailer. And those set pieces, too, are what linger in your memory when you're, you know, a few hours later gaspingly gaspingly recalling what happened in the film with your friends over beers, you know, in those, those moments, they say moments make movies. Those moments are what uh, you remember years later, even mm-hmm. you know, you remember that, that boulder rolling after Indiana Jones. You remember uh, the shower scene in psycho. You remember, you know, Julie Andrews spinning on a hilltop and the sound of music. <laughs> you, you know, you, I'd say that if you like every film that's in your head, like you can sort of sh- just drop it on the ground and it'll shatter into five to seven of these, mm-hmm. these indelible images. And oftentimes these images too, like before the author, or the creator even knows what the story is, they know that thing. So, you know, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, they write Halloween. They had the scares in Halloween written before they even knew what the movie was about. Yeah. So, that's sort of how, that's sort of where I always begin, and that's where I sometimes ask my students to begin. Even though, you know, other people are, like, more voice-driven or, or more concept-driven. But for me, it always comes down to the image. It goes full circle back to what you were saying about the X-Force and the uh, snowmobile or ski fight in, uh, was it Lake Tahoe or Utah? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, you've been kind of carrying around this image, like, almost like a, like a hobo, and, like, you just had all your possessions in this one shopping cart and just a bunch of images, and you've just been kind of yeah, wandering yeah. around, uh, and the, these images had no home for a while, I guess, until you found, like, you got hired to do X-Force, and you're like, all right, I can put this in here now, finally, and unload that from the shopping yeah. cart. Yeah, yeah, and if you think of, I mean, I can, you can, I can point to every comic I've ever written, every novel I've ever written, short story like oh i know where that came from you know the the trick is you know finding an emotional or story truth for it because sometimes it means nothing in actual life like for instance i've got this story called refresher fresh that i wrote and in it there is an image cold from life there is a garden hose laid tip to tip in a backyard making a ring and there are boys fighting in this ring they're wearing gold colored boxing gloves and these gold colored boxing gloves are so worn down that in places their knuckles show through the foam like teeth through a busted lip you know and they're wailing on each other now in actual life this was me my friends and i as an extracurricular activity <laughs> used to beat the crap out of each other after school fight club now there was no there was no good reason for this this is pre-fight club we invented fight club <laughs> and, and anyways there was no good reason for this we were just insane um but in the story right there's a truth 
truth is that their kids are doing this because their fathers are overseas fighting. And so they are play acting, they're engaging in the sort of theater of violence, anticipating what they might be up to overseas. And they're also swinging the pain out of their system because they're so distraught over their missing fathers. So in other words, you, you take this thing that is glowing for whatever reason, right? You take this thing and then you find, you find its place in a, in a story constellation. And can we expect, in terms of your uh, constellations, can we expect more novels? We touched upon the latest book, Suicide Woods, and we touched upon some of the uh, X-Men and some of the Marvel comics that are coming out. Um, can we expect more novels, or what can we expect from you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got a sci-fi trilogy coming out called The Comet Cycle. And in a way, it's me creating my own Marvel or DC universe. Um, and... The first book comes out in 2021, and it's called The Ninth Metal. All right. And are you also exploring film and television at all? I am. I've been busy with the podcasts, and I've also been busy with film and TV stuff. There is a film that I'm, I'm hoping I can announce soon, but right now it's still we're, – we're trying to herd cats. We're trying to get the actors committed, mm-hmm. and that's always – that's always difficult. So yes. hopefully I'll have a movie announcement soon that I co-wrote with my buddy. Oh, that'd be great. I mean, film, obviously, like you said, like you need like set people, DOP, director. You need all these people. You need the right. actors. Whereas when you sit down to write a novel, you just need like a word processor or a typewriter. And it's just you. Yeah. So yeah. it's a lot easier to get you on the same page. Yeah, I've had a lot of uh, flirtations with Hollywood that have gone nowhere. But, <laughs> it, it, you know, it's it's always... It's always exciting when when Hollywood comes knocking. At least they're still flirting, though, right? So you still got that going. Yeah, I haven't been kicked to the curb yet. There you go. Uh, so where can people find you online to yell at you for giving them nightmares and uh, and or wetting their bed? <laughs> uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. They can they can find me there and give me a tickle. <laughs> And uh, so, yeah, the the book is uh, Suicide Woods, and it's out right now, and it is perfect for this kind of uh, fall, uh, wintry type season. One of the themes I notice is, like, uh, the word cold is used a lot, winter is used a lot, uh, wind, like, a lot of those kind of themes uh, to kind of permeate each yeah. of the stories. It's yeah, a good time, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, It's a good time fall. Those are my, favorite, those are my favorite sensory details alongside shadows and blood <laughs> all right that's it i we got to end it there once the maniacal laugh begins i think that's usually my cue to get out uh we covered shadows <laughs> we covered seasons uh we covered short stories uh mary shelley and then we even got around to the x-force and the uh and wolverine good old wolvie so thank oh, yeah. you so much for your time i appreciate it and the the book is fantastic you did a great job so high five thanks man thanks for reading it Thanks for reading it. Thanks for making some noise about it. Yeah, no problem. Bye. How cool was that? That was my uh, second interview uh, with Benjamin Percy. Uh, that voice is amazing. He He's the type of person that you want uh, when you go camping. And, of course, you want to go camping with him because he's all outdoors. Whatever, I'm a city kid. I don't know how to start a fire or do anything like useful. But he's that he's he's got that voice and he's got those images and that storytelling and he's the dude that you want with the flashlight under his chin, 
telling you stories and not like the stories that everyone knows about the uh the guy who escaped from the asylum and he's got the hook and then there was a couple there and uh, they went out of gas and those kind of cheesy stories whatever you want him to tell stories and to take you down those dark alleyways and it's like trust me on this like mm, i don't know about this so Suicide Woods is great for this. It's nine short stories and one novella. And it is perfect for this time of year, as we were kind of saying, like for the fall, for the winter. Um, this is the kind of vibe where like you can just kind of read one short story and then kind of go to bed. And then if you have nightmares or fear pee, you're on your own. As he said, you follow him online. You can follow me online as well. If you uh, also love the smell of fear pee in the morning because it smells like victory, I am at my pal Sammy. That's my pal Sammy for Twitter, my pal Sammy for Facebook, and my pal Sammy for Instagram. Halloween and fear, yo.